Sports Intoxication, a very special episode of Sports Intoxication, as we are joined by now we would call him friend of the podcast. Oh yeah. Veteran contributor to the podcast. <laughs> uh, well, is it just just the second visit gets you that, right? Like... <laughs> yeah. I mean you and you and Rick Broering. It's 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 neck and neck. Like uh, Oh wow. I don't want to be yeah. I mean I don't want to be put in the same esteem as Rick. No. Come on. <laughs> we need me and Rick and I need to do this together at some point. Oh, there we go. Two veterans getting together and <laughs> and putting it together. I love I love hanging out with Rick. That would be a good time. Absolutely. Uh Paul Daner Jr. from the athletic.com has been kind enough to join us again. And uh he's gonna tell us tales of, of Bangledom and Joe Burrow's knee and Zach Taylor, the greatest coach ever. And um I think last time you were on we even uh we got you to talk a little bit about David Bell being a nice man. He's a nice uh, man. I'm, I'm mainly just <laughs> looking forward to more stories about Buffalo, but I'm just going to try not to tell the same stories because you guys get me on here. You start getting me drinking and then I'm going to forget that I told the story last time. So when I start telling the story, just be like, Paul, stop. You've told this. Story. I've told these stories so many times with that. I don't even remember who I've told them to anymore. So, well, as we've already referenced before we started recording, uh, the, the tens of listeners, uh, they've heard half of which you guys have created. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, mom. Uh, (laughs) actually I forbid my mom from listening because of the content for this podcast. Um, so joined as, as usual by Brian Chase and Matt Bessler. How's it going? What's up? And we are uh, on the on the eve. Really, this is like a a, a holiday here. Uh, we're on the eve of training camp. We are. The, tomorrow's the day. Wednesday is the. Uh... The first day for you guys, it's like this exciting thing, right? Like <laughs> the eve of training camp. And for me, it's like the beginning of like a just absolutely nightmarish run of my job. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad you guys are happy here drinking. I'm drinking tonight late into the night, knowing that I have to get up and like start like a ridiculous run of work. It's like tax season for an accountant or something. <laughs> well, so thank you again. Uh, Oh, I'm happy to do it. I mean, this I would be doing this anyway. I just wouldn't be, you know, getting the joy of talking to you guys about it. My <laughs> wife doesn't care about any of these stories, and she's definitely heard them all multiple times. <laughs> um, so, um, the last time we had you on, my opening question was, how's Marvin? So, but you don't have to deal with that anymore. Oh, wow. <laughs> Has it been that long? <laughs> no, no, I was joking. Oh. I was joking because you and Marvin were buddies so oh, tight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Time heals all wounds, Kevin. I'm sure we'll eventually get back together and hug it out. <laughs> Agree. After he's after he's out of the hot water at Arizona State that he's got himself into. Who knows? Yeah, stunning turn of events. <laughs> you, you know what? The thing is about that is that you, I guarantee you there was absolutely nothing malicious or wrong. It just didn't know the rules. Oh, it was yeah. just like, whatever. I, like, I can't do any of these things. And then all of a sudden found <laughs> out later. And 
you know, so I mean, it's <laughs> I can't stay. I'm I'm super stunned. <laughs> like the uh, Sean Miller situation, as Matt, Matt might say. <laughs> <laughs> Did another rule. <laughs> so we, uh, you know, we we appreciate you joining us and and mm-hmm. uh, giving us your time and uh, providing some level of legitimacy to our uh drunken sports podcast man i gotta say this is the only person that's ever tried to say that i brought legitimacy to something like i'm really that's 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 something i don't i don't know that i ever thought that would be the case if that doesn't tell you where our podcast yeah i mean you gotta remember paul the first time you joined there was a guy named jimmy on the podcast oh, yeah. so we've come a long way <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to go back and re-listen to whatever the hell happened on that. <laughs> All I know is that shit went so sideways. <laughs> I remember walking out of there thinking, like, I think I actually texted you the next day, Kevin. Like, I don't know if I said something I shouldn't have, but like, if I did, please edit it out. Because I just remember it getting real crazy. <laughs> no, you didn't. I remember you walking out and, well, he ain't coming back. <laughs> I had a great time. <laughs> uh, so, my first question, Paul, did you feel any guilt cashing your paycheck this week? Oh, if you listened to the '97 <laughs> episode, I see. <laughs> Steve Sovar, how great is that? So, I was driving through the mountains in Washington State with my one-year-old in the back and my wife, and listening to that podcast in the front seat, and just hear. Fuck you. <laughs> and I just, just start dying. I mean, yeah, it is quite startling. Jay told that story with such authority, and I was totally. I was totally not expecting him to just drop an F bomb out of there. Like <laughs> he just did. And I was, yeah, anybody that's just uh not expecting that had to be like, oh man, turn the volume down a little bit. <laughs> oh, it was it was gold. Because you're absolutely it. right. It was out of left field, just stunning. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Jay obviously like totally saved up for that moment too. Like he, cause you know, we watched the game, we kind of half plot what we're going to go through and talk about. And he obviously had that story in his pocket, was ready to go with it the whole time. He's like, I'm going to drop a really surprising F-bomb on everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I love our producer. We have a producer who does those shows for us. And, uh, he was like, yeah, I'm not editing that out at all. Like, where's, I could beep that, but I don't at all want to. That's necessary. Well, in the in the, the pantheon of Bengaldom stories and history, you have Boomer Esiason there. You have the rise of Corey Dillon. You have all these things coming together, and then you have Steve Tovar. And then there's Steve Tovar, who I totally <laughs> need to talk to now for something. Like, I, there's got to be a Tovar story that I can write at this point because I just want to talk to him more about that. Absolutely. I really enjoyed that episode. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so year year two of Joe Burrow, obviously coming off the, the knee injury and lots of off-season talk about, I mean, go back to November and everybody's wondering if he's going to be healthy for week one, let alone the first day of training camp. So I am going to venture to say, and you tell me if I'm wrong, is this the the most positive outlook that that Bengals fans have had about the organization in general 
in I mean is it does it predate the Andy Dalton era and maybe back to the Carson era? No, I mean I can't it, the the early to the early part of this decade is is an interesting one just because there should have been more excitement, but there was like this total, you know, like taking for granted the fact that this team's going to win 10, 11 games and just you would just make fun of them for losing in the playoffs. And it was like this weird thing that it was not a big deal to win 10 or 11 games. And so, like, was there excitement before the 2015 season? I don't know. There was during that season. I know that much. Um, it, but, you know, yeah, I, I would there. It got so toxic at that point. After that, that yeah, at definitely a, until certainly the middle of the 2015 season, this is the 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 most buzz there's been. I I can't remember a season that I felt. You know, we the our age group is a very specific generation that had saw kind of lived. You know, got a touch of the the late 80s with the Super Bowl as that in many ways probably got us liking the Bengals or liking football. And then we lived through the nineties and watched the Renaissance and the Oh five season was so special for our generation because there, we had gone through all the suffering. If you were a fan, if you were around Cincinnati, you had seen how special it was to watch the city reconnect with football again. This is the first year I've had since then and I was gone for a little bit of that time, but since I remember that feeling of that season, that to say before a year, this has a chance to be like that. This it does it, it, it with Burrow and with the offense and with you know the possibilities that come with a young quarterback that could take that huge step. This is the first time I can say you could see that special year happening that changes the whole dynamic of the way the fans view the team and and they become cool again and they pack it and it's loud and it can last for a you know five ten years off of that stuff it did in 05 now it could go opposite they could be picking third overall next year but the 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 way it's set up today that's in the realm of possibility and i haven't been able to say that probably since i've been covering the team yeah and i think that's kind of like as as a hundred percent a Bengals fan, um, I I feel like there's no cap on the Joe Burrow excitement. Yeah. Whereas, and Matt walked away probably because he knew I was going to go here. Uh, I'm right here. That, Sorry, <laughs> that, uh, I had to kill a spider. <laughs> this is Westchester spiders, man. <laughs> get you. Bigger. They're, they're bigger on the burbs. It's like Australia up there. Everything's trying uh, to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Don't so, start ripping on Andy Dalton though, right now. <laughs> so uh, there was a, a cap of the Andy Dalton era. Because you felt like there was a, a ceiling. That Andy Dalton, not to any discredit to him, but was not going to all of a sudden be in the echelon of Brady, Breeze, Rodgers, whereas with Joe Burrow, you can kind of dream on that a little bit. And maybe you're not so, dreaming that much. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Sox, because I I completely agree. I think the talent is there. I think they've, it, at least from a fan's perspective, it looks like they have all the skill positions. They've invested in the defense. 
The offensive line, maybe there's, I don't know, maybe there's still some question marks, but they've at least tried to address it. Um, but to me, the capper now is not the quarterback position. To me, the question is still out. Can this coaching staff put these guys in position to be successful? And I don't think they've proven that through the first two years. They obviously, Bengals ownership is high on them. They think they're very talented and, and young and will develop. But at some point, you got you to gotta put it together. So what I'm concerned about is I think they have the talent. I'm just not sure that they have the coaching to pull it off. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that, that's the question out there, right? Because, and I actually wrote about this, and it was a big topic at the Mock Turtle Soup Luncheon on Monday, and that was, look, I mean, you, you this year three, you, you brought this staff back after 625-1. and one. There were excuses that some were self-created, self-inflicted. Some were very valid, of the first two years, you had a new quarterback, you had COVID, you had learning the roster. And really, this team should have hit a hard reset on the roster immediately. They didn't. It took them two years because of the Bengals and their turtles, and that's how they operate. And so you it really, this was what the rebuild reset should have looked like quicker. It should have looked like this last year, but it didn't. Regardless, you had the quarterback coming into year two. You have what you wanted. You had the you have now have the vision that was sort of sold to you when you moved from Marvin to Zach a couple of years ago. And that was Franchise quarterback, young offensive-minded head coach that's going to create a great relationship with him, and those two will grow together as the cornerstone of potential championships. That's what you wanted from the beginning, and the rest you can – you know, you build around that idea. Well, now they have that, and and but they have to win quickly. And, you know, I, Mike Brown, man, like there's a lot of things we could tell stories about here uh, about him, and I have plenty. He's never – filtered he's not gonna lie to you and he was you know i thought he was pretty clear he's he's excited about the but what they can be he thinks it's possible but it was like this is x team and it's critical that they win now we have to win like the talk is over no more time for talk we can't talk about progress that's fine that that's happened and that we progress is what we've measured the last couple years off of it was clear that from his words not mine that that time is over and this is your opportunity. This is the critical moment for all of us here, for you and for what you're trying to build. You got to go win it. There's no other way around it now. If Burrow's healthy and you're coaching, you need to win games. And and I think there was there wasn't an or else said by Mike, but he didn't need to. You know, like I just think everybody knows that he's you got to go prove it with your team now that you can do it. So do you think he was obviously the Bengals were extremely patient with Marvin. And I take part of that is that Marvin had a good relationship with the Brown family. But do you think if, if Taylor doesn't win at least nine games this year or something, I don't know what the number is, but that there's no chance he's back next year because they feel like the window with Burrow is closing. So they got to get somebody in here that knows what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I think they're, I'm you know, you you need to be over that you need to be over that Vegas number, six and a half. I mean, if Burrow plays all seventeen games, you you can't be six and eleven, you know, and 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 think that that's going to be enough, you know. I, and you never know, but you never know. I, I it's why I hate putting numbers on it because there's so many different every year's different. There's so many extenuating circumstances. I mean, if you'd have told me. 
that we'd seen from the last two years, what we saw from Louis Anarumo, and he'd still be around. I, I yeah. never saw that. I, I saw no path for his return last year. And yet they all sort of sided with them in saying that it was because all the injuries and the players weren't good enough. And that's fine. I just – I do think there's probably a number – but I, it's hard to put numbers on it because the circumstances right. change it. But per, I mean, if you're generally saying it, I mean, I look at that Vegas number, and you, you, if you're going to go from two wins to four wins, and you're going to have add an extra game, you better you need to be around 500, and you need to be in that area where those that that means you're playing relevant games at home in December. Those crowds, those moments can carry you with in in Mike's mind for sure. I would think into next year and give you another chance for it to grow together because. Um, that's where they should be, honestly. I mean, if we're really judging what they are as a rebuild and what the next step looks like, the next step looks like a team that's 500 and that wins a couple of games and looks like a team that next year is going to be real. I mean, that's that's the realistic version of these Bengals, of the 2021 Bengals. You can hope for more. Uh, but, you know, if you do that, I think everybody's still on board with what you're doing because it's then you'd have Chase in year two, Higgins in year three, Burrow in year three, uh, defensive, bring everybody back. Jonah Williams is back. Another year of drafting and free agency to supplement the line. Like you, you can see that taking off. And if Burrow is a real deal, and him and Zach's relationship ends, continues to be good, and they win enough games, they're gonna want to keep that together as long as they can. Well, that means that don't you think then? I mean, kind of with what you're saying, like to me, looking at their schedule, and I know it's you know hard to talk about this at the end of July, but me those first two weeks are the biggest games of the year i mean you you got minnesota at home you get chicago on the road two very winnable games for a guy and a team when you look at the back half of the schedule and you're talking about meaningful games in december it's probably their most difficult stretch the last six seven games I mean, you gotta get off to a good start right in terms of i know you want to do that every year but just the way the schedule shakes out to me i mean it I mean, Zach Taylor stepping right into the fire right away. I mean, you have to win those first couple weeks. You can't get into a one and four, one and five start. If you um, look, they they have invested a lot of uh, eyeballs into that Jacksonville game on that Thursday night mm-hmm. in week four. If you come into that and you lose to the Jaguars to go zero and four, yeah, you're done. It where in the Ring of Honor and the '81 team and Thursday night football and and the, the the uniforms, the new uniforms, and you're getting your players are probably starting to revolt at that point. If that's the case, if that were to happen, I mean, we're playing out a, a nightmare scenario here. But I mean, sure. if, that, if that's where you're at, <laughs> look when, when we when we look back. When we when we look back at history here with Mike and when he's done things, he has f- fired coaches in season before. In fact, it's been the only way he's kind of ever done it outside of Marvin, which is a rare case for because of his longevity. You know, Bruce Coslett, Dave Shula, I guess LeBeau was allowed to finish. But you, you've had interim coaches like – that was the 90s cycle. The interim coach comes in and, and gives them a little, you know, dead cat bounce and and they would play off that for an extra year. <laughs> and so, like, that would be the scenario. And we saw it in recent, the end of Marvin era, right? Ken Zampezi, yep. uh, Terrell Austin, uh, both were let go. I mean, Zampezi after three games. And so, yep. like, 
we're talking about after two games, we're talking about like that is a nightmare scenario right there. That first four games um, are all winnable. I guess well, yeah, I mean, three I at Pittsburgh. I mean, you just beat Pittsburgh on Monday Night Football in December right. with freaking Ryan Finley. So, like, you know, <laughs> if you lose to the to Kirk Cousins and you lose to uh, Andy Dalton and you lose to Old Ben and the team you beat with Ryan Finley and you lose to Trevor Lawrence on Thursday Night Football in the one in fifteen Jaguars. What what happens? Yeah, you know, and I mean, I'm not saying that's gonna happen, but like that, you're exactly right, Matt. Like, I totally agree with you. There is a ton of pressure to win, to win immediately, and I think it's gonna gonna set the tone for the year. It's gonna set the tone for the year. Yeah, you go. I mean, that week, that week one game, you you go three and one in that stretch. Yeah, why not? Um, that week, that week one game is just huge because you get that sold out crowd at home. Probably Burrow's mm-hmm. back. You lose to Minnesota there, and that's just oh boy. And there's Trouble. old and there's old friend Zim. Yeah. You know, like how many times do we see him just shut down great quarterbacks mm-hmm. over and over again? Like yeah. I, boy, I, I actually, despite the fact that their defense was not great last year, I hated that for the opener. For that, yeah. I just just it's it's just Zim, and he just knows how to he knows how to work that defense to to just you know ruin a guy for a day, uh, and but Ton, you know, tons of time to prepare. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. To just watch tape of bad offensive linemen whiff on blocks and be like, oh, this is gonna be <laughs> great, you know. <laughs> you brought up the uh, well, you brought up two things. You brought up Anarumo coming back and. Uh, the Thursday night or Monday night game against the Steelers that the Bengals won with Ryan Finley. Um, I have a buddy who his son played football at Harvard and Anaruma was a assistant coach on that staff. And this guy's the, the kid's like 40 now. And uh, my buddy texts me and says, Oh, Lou's got him playing well tonight. And about the Bengals defense. And he, he lives in North Carolina. Like he doesn't know anything about Bengals football or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I think your boy's about to be out of a job. But he he humanized Lou Anaruma for me because now I know this guy whose son played for Lou Anaruma had nothing but nice things to say about Lou Anaruma. Now all of a sudden this guy uh, like has a family and mm. you know is is not just a terrible defensive coordinator that uh, well quote unquote terrible defensive coordinator. <laughs> but it was just kind of a funny uh, thing that happened with with Lou and then Lou stuck around. Yeah. Were you just trying to like humble brag that you know somebody who went to Harvard? Is that what that <laughs> was? <laughs> yeah. Look, I don't know if you guys know, but I know people who've gone to Harvard. I mean, I didn't get it, but I know people there. Uh, he also played in the NFL and played for the Patriots. Oh, so. now you're going to make me figure it out. Wow. Like, now the football reference yeah. him. Okay. Okay. I'll have to figure that out. We'll, we'll look him up. Now, name drop you. <laughs> <laughs> Would that help me or hurt me? <laughs> no, you know what's funny, and just to you know, while we're sitting here drinking, I just like it's a really interesting thing, and that really I didn't really have a problem with with what social media has become. And I'm not here to be old man yelling at the social media cloud, but like from our perspective as a as a media member, we 
are humanized to these people. We meet them, we know them, we get to know them, we see their families, we understand who they are as people, we know how hard they work, we know the hours they put in. And it's the freaking NFL and it chews you up and spits you out and it's freaking hard. And the best coaches lose a lot of games and they mean well and they try hard and and like there there's it's just not easy. And you get in the wrong situation with the right guy and it doesn't matter. And like the way people destroy, and that's why people always say, Oh, when are they gonna fire that guy? And they should get rid of him. I'm always really, really hesitant to write about that and to touch on that stuff because because I do know them that way. And not because I know, but because I it, but there's that disconnect there, right? Like, and it's that way with all of us, not just with football coaches, but with everybody. There's like this disconnect that you can just like say these things and 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 rip on people and they're just a some they're just something that you can scream and yell at whereas you know it's not like that for them i mean they're they're very committed smart quality coaches maybe even and they just you know just can't quite make it work or whatever and all of a sudden they're being called every name in the book and and you know ugliest sin in the city of cincinnati and i just I have a hard time with that stuff and people always want to call for heads and they always want to call for firings and they always want to know when's this guy going to lose his job. And that's hard, man. It's like, cause to us, the, you know, these are people with jobs. They're, they're John who has the cubicle next to you to us. Yep. And you don't ever want anybody to lose their job or have to talk about that. And it's like the weird line that we have to walk as media because we have this frothing, frothing fans that demand that. And then on the other hand, the like, I'm not trying to yell for people to lose their jobs. You know, it's, it's, it makes it for a really challenging environment to work on. It's significantly different today than it was four years ago. I mean, really? A hundred percent. And I, I totally agree with you. We do need, because that's probably like the realest softest moment that we've ever had on this podcast like, <laughs> oh, did I, go soft? <laughs> I don't mean I like soft. Go soft i don't mean soft like you're soft i mean like that was a tender moment on this yeah. podcast uh, so yeah. like we need the, the tom rinaldi piano music like on espn oh, like do you have that i don't i'll look it up i mean what a what an absolute missed opportunity from you i mean that should be you should have that you just hit the button ready to go if someone goes soft future reference have the piano music ready to go if someone's going soft oh i'm gonna go chug a beer now to show you how tough i am oh. Luma was just an ordinary football coach <laughs> in the small harvard in the small midwest city of cincinnati uh... <laughs> no See, but... i thought that story was i thought you were just telling that so that now matt and i could understand why you only referred to him as sweet Lou, it all makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, That's awesome. exactly. No, I, you, that, you bring up a great point, and that uh, that is is certainly uh, we've called for heads on this podcast for sure. Good thing is we don't have that many listeners, so uh, <laughs> it's not like it's getting out there via us. Um, but the other, but the other thing is it like these guys know it, and this is like that, and that's why it makes it a little easier to have these comments because like these coaches and players live in this world of brutal honesty that corporate America does not like the regular, like the way we operate, 
in our offices, in our jobs, are very different than the way they talk to each other over there, by the way. <laughs> like, they just tell each other exactly how they sucked in very aggressive terms every day. Brutal honesty, communication about it's like it's intense. And so they're very used to, and these coaches have the understanding that. You know, every great coach has been fired. I will be fired. You will be fired. We all will be fired. Like, it's okay. It's, it's like, so there is a little bit of an understanding on their part. Um, but yeah, it is different when they're, when you humanize them a little bit. Hey, Lou, did you tell someone today that they sucked something? <laughs> the answer is uh, yes. Becky the from always HR. Yes. Becky from HR wants to see you. <laughs> Becky from HR. <laughs> yeah, there's no Becky from HR in NFL. <laughs> there may be now, though. Times are changing, man. Times are changing. There, there may be HR is prevalent, but I don't, you know, I don't think so. Uh, so one of the things we kind of touched on, um, Chase mentioned that we that, that they kind of addressed. Um, the offensive line. And I know that there's, there's not going to be any proof in the pudding until we see it live on week one, but what are your overall thoughts on what was done this off season as far as the, the Jackson Carmen pick in round two, which they traded that was highly scrutinized because they traded back and missed out on some guys that could presumably have been tackles uh, more prominently. Um, The big signing of, Riley Reef, and then kind of the status quo along the interior, with the exception of the the Carmen pick. Um, yeah, what, I, I mean, I thought it was not aggressive enough. You know, I mean, I think they could have been much more aggressive there. They, you know, they sort of got cute with Kevin Zeitler early and got burned on that you know, trying to figure out just the right value and deal there. And somebody came in and slapped a very reasonable deal on him and he took it in Baltimore. That hurt. And because, you know, I think there was a world in their heads, in the heads of, you know, Zach Taylor and Brian Callahan and Frank Pollock, that they would sign Reef and Zeitler. And how differently you would feel today if they would have done that and you know and if you drafted Carmen and you signed Reef and Zeitler sudden it suddenly it is the aggressive play that people talk about now with the Chargers and with the not quite the Chiefs but the same concept I don't hate on them for not trying to pay Trent Williams and Joe Tooney and all that stuff that went down like the guard market was stupid this year there was like two real guys and they were overpaid and and I don't I don't mind the direction that they went with it. I don't mind. I, I, I was team chase um, by the end and, and, and I don't mind the pick over Sewell there, but I do think it'll be fun to look back on that and see how we view it. Um, but I, I totally get it. I don't think there was a wrong. I totally understand why they did it. And I do feel like it fits them and suits Burrow and all that stuff. I, I just would like to have seen for once make the effort to be aggressive and over the top and making the line better. And I just, we just never see that. There's always some excuse with it. There's always some half answer. And it's just like, when are you going to care about it? And if you're not going to care about it after what happened to Burrow and DC and what happened to last year's team, when are you ever going to do that? And just make the investment the way you made the, make the investment in defensive line. 
when you pay Reader and you yep. pay Hendrickson and you pay Hubbard and you know you pay Ogan Joby six and a half. Like, where's the investment on the other side of the line in the same way? The aggressive move when you draft more guys. Like, where's that? And and I just I just never see you never see that. And I just for once you want to see them do that. But that's just not going to be the case. It's just not who they are. It's not in their DNA. And I think they can get away with it. I mean, I think what they have right now, they can absolutely get away with it and have a great offense, and Burrow will be fine. And it's important to remember that so much of last year's narrative was from the first month, and particularly the Browns game on national television, when Burrow was still figuring out how to maneuver through a pocket and what he could and couldn't get away with, and a lot of those hits were on him. Not all of them, but he was figuring it out. But once he figured it out, and once they figured out how to make it all work together, he really was not hit as much. And and that was with a bad line in front of him. And they were moving the ball, and they were scoring a crap load of points. And, you know, they were second in the league in points per drive for a month there. And, I mean, they figured a lot of things out and made it work with that, with Bobby Hart and with whoever the hell was even playing guard at that point. And, you know, Quentin Spain showing up on Friday and playing on Sunday. Like, who knows? And so for that fact, you look at, I think, Spain with a full year is a nice – I think he's better than what they've had at guard in a while. Reef is obviously an upgrade over Bobby Hart. Jonah Williams should be better than he was last year. At the very least, he'll be the same. Trey Hopkins, Billy Price. Billy Price with Pollock makes him a more viable option potentially. Uh Trey Hopkins, I think, is is who he is. He's a solid guy who you feel okay about. Whatever happens with the other guard spot, I mean, Suofilo has played a lot of games in this league and been okay. No donkeys. No right? donkeys. Hashtag no donkeys. No, hashtag no donkeys, right? With, with Chase and Higgins and Boyd and Burrow and Mixon, no donkeys. If you have no donkeys, you will see a fireworks on offense if they're not a total liability. That's, and I think they, I think they have that. I'd love for them to invest in more, but I think they have that. It's interesting to hear you say, like, you know, your perspective on the offensive line. Because to me, I look at what they did, and yeah, it, it wasn't ideal, but they at least did something and they addressed other areas of the team. So I at least feel some sort of optimism going into the year as opposed to let's contrast with the other professional team in Cincinnati and what we're seeing right now where – they they Sabotage clearly just them. said yeah they clearly just said fuck the bullpen we don't care about it and we're gonna let Kyle Farmer play shortstop or Suarez and we're just gonna see what happens and and it has completely failed. Farmer and just made Castellini, a great play. I know I I I was thinking that ironically as I'm watching this but still he's not they could have had Willie Adamas if if they really were aggressive about that you know so it's just to me it's I understand they could have done more on the offensive line but it's refreshing to see that it actually feels like the Bengals are trying to win. Now, like I said earlier, maybe the coaching isn't there. I don't know, but it feels like they're putting players in position for the Bengals to be good. Whereas the Reds, it's like they spent all this money. They, they got a, a group of position players minus shortstop that should be a very good everyday lineup. They've got a rotation that should be respectful. All you have to do is spend a little extra money in the bullpen and this team is in contention and they don't do it. It's dumbfounding. 
Shout out Bob Castellini for making Bob Mike Brown look like an aggressive, positive owner. Like, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> well, it's it's funny how like the narrative has now shifted to everyone has moved their arrows down Maring Way to the uh, to the other <laughs> side. You know, and, well, I, I've said this for a while. Like the Bengals, I was are, just gonna say the Bengals are PR awful. Like they are just a disaster from the PR standpoint. They don't they don't do any of the things that the Reds do right outside of the field. The Bengals have always been better at putting together teams on the field than the Reds have been in Brown versus Castellini years. The numbers show it. The playoff appearances yeah. show it. The winning percentage shows it. The lack of clown shit shows it. That and and people rip on the Bengals and Mike Brown or whatever. But like, you know, I, they have done a far better job at being good at their sport on the field than the Reds have. They're just ab. They've been an abject disaster off of it. Yeah. And and the fact that they've lost, they lost all those playoff games changed everything because it it created that thirty years narrative. How about the nineteen ninety five narrative? Like yeah, I mean, no, no one ever, no one like, like, what's the difference when you're when you're in the year 2021? What is the difference between hasn't advanced since '95 and hasn't advanced since '90? It's all a generation. <laughs> it's all a generation right? of fans lost. Like, but yeah. no, but nobody, nobody has held that over the Reds head. Nobody. I was just going to say that, as Brian was saying that about the Reds, that, Paul, your heart was warming a little bit because you were talking about the Reds getting off the hook last year on this podcast. Like, it was. Yeah. And and you're you're right at everything that you said because I think that the the warm feelings towards the Reds are, oh, let's have this, you know, this fan show where they can come to the convention center and do this. Oh, let's retire Barry Larkin's number. Let's play on the sentimentality of these fans. The bank was like, no, nah, we're not going to do that. Now nah, we're not going to do that. Like, so you're right. Like there's, and there's- the reds and the reds have the tradition. They have the big red machine. They had wire to wire and they do play to the fans in a night at the damn ballpark is the fucking best. And like everybody walks away. there feeling great. Even when the club loses 12 to one, but when the Bengals lose 41 to 30, you walk out of there wanting someone fired tonight. <laughs> and it's like the game means more. You're more intense about it. It's more about the field. It's not about the, the feel-good experience. The Reds understand that. They under they, you know, them and their and everyone over there and Karen Forgus and their whole crew of people are very good. And they understand how to market themselves and endear themselves to their fans. And regardless of what's happening on the field, I think the Bengals want to be that now. Uh, but I don't yeah. know. You know, they still have a long way to go in that regard. But you're but- you're commenting on a lost generation of fans. It's just even though that's that's happened. What what's amazing to me is that um, when the Reds or the Bengals are good, I mean, the support that they get from the city of Cincinnati and the fans, it, it it's incredible to me. Like everybody gets so excited because. We're just so hungry for anybody to win anything. Yeah, people want it, man. I mean, that's and that's where 05 came from. I mean, not to bring that back up, but, like, that's why it was one of the greatest years that people have experienced here in terms of football. I mean, because it had been so long, and it made it feel so special, and, and, and it was like all this pent-up need to love a team showed up. And, and, and I think you have that now. I think that atmosphere yeah. is back. I mean, that the first team, and whether this this team goes, you know, 
four and thirteen. These numbers are fucking with me. But if the numbers go, if this team goes four and thirteen, <laughs> and then next year the Reds put it together and win a pennant, like people will love that Reds team like they have yeah. it before. Just the atmosphere is sitting; it's there for the taking right now. People want it so bad, and you will own a, like a generation of fans because they'll have latched onto right. it so hard. It's just right there, and we know FC Cincinnati ain't taking it. So, like, you might as well, you know, this is the chance for a couple of teams that have a lot of good players on their rosters right now to make a play. Unfortunately, the Reds blew it. We'll see if the Bengals do. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the the kind of ships passing in the night on Marrying Way is interesting with what the Bengals have done this offseason with the Ring of Honor, the long-awaited thing. And, like Brian was mentioning, the Reds just taking a complete pass on the off season. Yep. Then this Reds team comes out and they're likable. Like you love Nick Castellanos. Jesse Winker's like this homegrown guy that's hitting. And now in the last what month, six weeks, five weeks, Joey Votto's like freaking 2017 Joey Votto. It's, it's crazy. Like this team's mm-hmm. likable. Yeah. And they don't have all the pieces that they need. And meanwhile, down the street, the Bengals are making this push to get, more involved with fans. And and I mean, like, when you think about it, all any fan wants to do is reflect on nostalgia. Oh, because you always remember the players are better than they actually were. And, mm. oh, this guy was so great. And that's what they're finally giving their fans a chance to connect to. Finally. Yeah, I, I have a – like, I, I, I give them they, – they get – you get some credit for hitting the button, but I have a hard time <laughs> – like, I mean, this was a layup a decade ago. And I, you right. know what? I, good for Elizabeth Blackburn for being the one human on earth able to come in and tell Mike Brown to just do this. Like, yeah. it's funny because I, I, when she first took over that role, you know, she's 27. She may have just turned 28, but she's in her 20s. And I was like, this job that Elizabeth Blackburn just took, director of strategy engagement for an NFL team, is something a lot of fantastic professionals never get to. Like, really, really great in their field, never get to. And she didn't have any real experience in that field. I mean, she's been in the NFL world. She's got the business, all that stuff. Her background is what it is. But the one thing that she has is she's the only person in the world that can walk into that room and call Mike Grandpa. And you know what? It, and Mike just says yes to stuff. He said this the other This was great. That we're sitting around the table with Mike in front of us. The the, the he had, it, to set the scene of mock turtle soup. There's three pods: one uh, TV pod, one TV, another TV pod, and then a print g- digital pod. So no cameras. Well, he's at he's with us, and the, and we're, so we're sitting all sitting around him, and somebody asks a question about um, about Elizabeth, and just says, you know, is Elizabeth uh, what's it like having your granddaughter here? And he basically says, you know, my granddaughter, unlike my kids, is the only person not afraid of me when they walk in the room, and point, and it was like such a, it, I laughed so loud. Because it was, it's so true. It's exactly what I had been told was like, I don't know. 
Mike keeps saying yes to Elizabeth. Like that has just <laughs> never happened before. And so that's how you get new uniforms and you get ring of honor and you get the game day experience stuff because she's been able to come in and convince grandpa that you need to do all of these things and they're really important. And, and so it's kind of interesting that someone who's really underqualified is actually the only person qualified in a weird way. Right. Um, so it's, it's kind of screwed up, but I do think they have done a good job of understanding what is missing for fans and what they've been yelling and screaming about. Um, and it was like, and not to ramble, but I wrote a story about Elizabeth and everything they were trying to do right at the beginning of the off season. And I was struggling so hard with uh, a lead to try to figure out how to start the story. And I, I mean, I'm telling you for like hours, I'm like, I had all this good stuff, but I didn't know how to get into it. And Jay had said, did you ask her if she reads the comments? And I was like, <laughs> I did. And I was like, and she said she did. I said, that's the fucking lead. <laughs> Elizabeth Blackburn reads the comments. Like, that's it. And Because it's the point. is She's yeah. in the dark corners of the internet listening to Bengals fans because she knows how important it is to do that. And no one in the organization has ever thought that's important. And I and and like it just struck me. And I was like, God, I was so happy with that because I it's like when you figure out a puzzle that you never thought you'd be able to figure out. And I was so happy because that really is the point. It was like, they, she decided that we need to listen to these people because we haven't. And no matter where we got to go to listen to them, even if it means going into the dark corners of Twitter. Uh, Paul, do you know if Bob Castellini has a granddaughter? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she's rich. If she exists. <laughs> What we learned is Elizabeth Blackburn and Kevin Durant are back here with burner accounts checking out what everybody's saying about <laughs> oh, it. Yeah. But, Elizabeth, but Elizabeth Blackburn can do something about it. She, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, she's actually got a, you know, she's got a way up top. That's great. That's <laughs> great. Do you do you guys have any uh, other questions about the specifics of of the twenty twenty one Bengals? As far as, um, I don't want to take up. All the questions are all the time, but I had a couple. I just got um, one. Yeah, go ahead, Brian. No, go for it. Um, I'm I'm just interested to see how the running back situation plays out. So, are they really? Is the plan really to play Mixon three downs most of the game, considering that he was hurt for ten games last year? Can I pull up OverTheCap.com real quick? <laughs> <laughs> To answer your question, uh, yes, and let me um, let me go into his contract out after this season. Uh, let's see, Joe Mixon. Joe Mixon has an out after this year. Uh, oh, they don't have it listed specifically on here. I have it. I, I have it written down somewhere, but not in front of me. There's an out after this year on Joe Mixon. Now, for him or for the team? Uh, for the team. Okay. And I'm not saying they're going to do this, but I'm saying there's an out after this year. Yeah. And they need to find out 
Joe Mixon had a very weird, mysterious foot injury last year that I didn't like the way people talked about it. And he may be fine. Uh, he's 100%. He's healthy. But I don't never. I never give that credence until I see it, and so I'm really curious to see what Joe Mixon looks like. I think I, you know, he he may be absolutely phenomenal, and they plan to show show him off. But they are paying him. They have paid him. There is zero reason to worry about overuse on Joe Mixon at this point, because if you over you overuse him and it shows, or he or his injury worsens or whatever it is, you have an out. Uh, and it might be one that's a tough pill to swallow, but it's an easier one than letting it play out after this year. So I think they want to get everything they can out of him this year and see how he handles it. And honestly, I think he deserves that opportunity. Like, I think he's uh, uh, he was underused in the passing game because they love Geo for a lot of reasons that we've talked about. But, like, you know, I want to see what Joe Mixon playing the Todd Gurley role looks like. I mean, the 2018 Rams and Todd Gurley in his prime. Todd Gurley was in the MVP conversation. That's what they want it to look like. Ideally, that's what this offense does look like. And I think that's what Zach wants. He wants a running game that is scary, that is Todd Gurley in his prime scary, with Joe Burrow running play action off of that. That's when the running game and the passing game marry themselves up and – you become unstoppable. I've said this on everything I've been on is I think this deep, this offense can be very good with Joe Burrow and these weapons alone. If Joe Mixon goes off this year, they are a nightmare. They are a nightmare. They are a top three offense. If Joe Mixon goes off this year, if Frank Pollock and they can figure out a way to make it look like 18 Mixon, because of the system, if that works, they're a nightmare. Imagine being a defensive coordinator and Joe Mixon's averaging 4.8 per rush, and then you've got to deal with the play action of Burrow, Higgins, Boyd, and Chase off of it. It's a nightmare. And so I, I think that's when they become scary, and, I, and they know that, and I think that's why they want to feature him and they, they, want, to, they want to let him roll. And I just like heard bet the over. Yeah, bet the over. Oh, definitely bet the over. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's, that should be a, no matter what, no matter what all year. Matt? Oh, mine was just going to be about going back to the offensive line for a second. I had kind of two. One was just touching on Frank Pollock a little bit. Um, but before that was how close – and I'm sure you've talked – and I know you guys have talked about it, but – you know, how close was the Chase versus Sewell deal, um, you know, realistically? Was there really that much debate internally? Or was – because it seems like by the time the draft came around, like you said, everyone was pretty much sure that it was going to be Chase. But uh, it was very close. I mean, I, I still think there's probably still people. By the way, Team Pitts uh, was real in the room too. Uh, I think there were. I think that they were. I think if you gave them lie detector tests, uh, and from what I've heard, they were really relieved when Atlanta took Pitts, so they didn't <laughs> have to say that we're the team that passed on Kyle Pitts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because I think everybody recognizing he's going to be special. 
and he's just our unicorn. And like, you know, like uh, Florida was calling him. I mean, I, he's just different. Um, but it was, I think, I think it was mostly split. I mean, I like it is everywhere. I mean, I think, but they had to eventually figure it. You have so much time to figure it out. Yeah. By the end, I think we had a feel for it. Um, because, you know, for me, I had heard these coaches tell, you know, complain about what was really missing all year long. I knew what they wanted and I knew they wanted a deep ball threat and a yak threat badly and felt like it was what was holding the whole offense back. And I knew that Burrow loved chase. And I knew that Burrow had said the phrase, we will never miss another deep ball. If you draft Jamar chase, I, I knew all that. And so when I, that's why I never came off of being team chase. And that's quite the phrase. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was, that's what I was told. And so I was, that's why I felt like they would eventually land there. But I also knew there was a lot of people in the building that loved Sewell, understandably. Um, I, I still, I, you know, I really didn't think there was a wrong, but I mean, you know, you can, you can go back to that and say that's why they landed there. But yep. I do think it was very close. And I do think it was a very, a, a fun debate like all the rest of us had, honestly. Like, I, there, that it's no different in there than it is here. But I, I think inevitably the new school thought of what really makes the needle move in pro football is what won out. And I think that should make Bengals fans happy. Like they're looking at it from an advanced view. The old school view is Sewell. And I'm not saying they shouldn't have done it. I'm just saying that is the old school view. The new school view is your quarterback protection and your offensive line is helped more by a receiver that separates quickly and gets open than a good offensive tackle. Who's one of five. And that's what they went with because they feel like they have five guys that could open quickly now and a QB that processes as good as anybody in football. And that becomes the thing that the defensive line can't beat. Right. Yeah. And so you're betting on Burrow and that by that pick more so than betting on, let's try to have one guy who can stonewall somebody on the outside. And so. Well, and that, that's kind of a, for, for your profession, Paul, the uh, the hand wringing and the just utter dismay when the Bengals won in Houston to move them back out of range to draft Sewell. How'd that work out? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. Like, I I specifically remember tweeting when that game ended. Uh, breaking colon. There's more than one good player in the draft, and because <laughs> because it was like people got very hung up on Sewell assuming, you know, there were just these assumptions made in December. Yeah. And it just, things changed so much. And we just don't know. And I, you know, it was the same. It's, it just makes, you got to realize that there's a long way to go. You never know. Like trying to worry about, it's different. We're talking about the Bengals in Miami in that game. When you're talking about Burrow, like, and we know, right. I mean, when you're just talking about are you going to pick third, are you going to pick fifth, who's out, like, it may end up that it's important. It may not. You should probably just root for your team to win. Like, it's probably better for them. You get into the situation where you're rooting for them to lose every December, and it's just a, yeah. it's, it's a bad cycle. <laughs> so yeah. I've got a draft-related draft question. Um, has, have there been rumblings or have people talked about 
um, you know, back-to-back years, you've got Burrow and, and Lawrence going number one. What do people think long-term outlook, who the, who the better quarterback is going to be at this point? Or has that not even come up yet? Uh, we, you know what? We had a, um, it was like one of these draft confidential things uh, that we had a bunch of, you know, I, 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 anonymous scouts, like, you know, those things are tough to decipher how comfortable you are with those. But I love our people with those because like, they're like real insiders, whether it's, you know, you're talking about the Bruce Feldman's of the world or, you know, these people who are truly connected. Um, and I remember it being pretty much down the line. Like I would have taken Burrow over Lawrence. They thought Burrow was the better prospect than Lawrence. Now, I don't know that it will turn out that way. And I think Trevor is going to be a fantastic quarterback. Time will tell. But, you know, Bur- Burrow is the intangibles god. Yeah. Yeah. And we've never seen somebody and and from a Bengals perspective, that's what made him the perfect fit because they needed someone to make everybody believe. They didn't right. need somebody with the, the cannon arm. They didn't need Carson. Well, Carson would not so Carson would not have been good for the 2020 Bengals. Well, Joe it's Burrow just interesting. Was yeah. <laughs> Palmer and and Dalton both seem to be very reserved people, which is a lot different than what what Burrow appears to be. Well, I think I think Carson had leadership abilities because people wanted to believe in him because of his he's just a freak. Like he's so mm-hmm. good, you just want to believe in somebody that that's good. But Burrow has you want to believe in him because of him and because of the way he works and the way he acts and how genuine he is and his and the, just how tenacious he is and that is the that resonates with everybody everybody watches him and he's the example and he is just you know he's the one of these special people that just can move the room it's weird like it's like any time you you've had a good boss and you're like i don't know why it is but like i just like gravitate to this person and i like that person and it just we connect you know, I can really – I just have a genuine connection with them. And I don't know why that is. Like, everybody feels that way, that that comes across them and you just hear them. I, I, I've talked to a bunch of coaches who have said, like, I've just never seen anybody, anything like it, where he just makes everyone believe immediately. And they just they just respond to him. And that's only going to be bigger in year two. Uh, and when, when now, and that was the big part of this off season, you know, they, they cleared out the previous leadership, you know, they mm-hmm. cleared out all, you know, Gino and even Gio, who's a great guy was no problem, but like all, everything that was the old era. And now, because NFL locker rooms, here's a weird thing about locker rooms that I found out when I started covering the league. Locker rooms are dominated by the two people that everybody knows when they walk in there. And that is these players, these rookies, these second year guys, they come in and say, Oh my God, that's Patrick Peterson or that's AJ green or that's whoever that it is dominated by that guys that, because the majority of the locker room is what 
drafted guys, undrafted guys, second year guys, guys who are 22, who were teenagers when the stars of the team were big time. And like, so you end up with an idolization that happens the moment they walk into that locker room. So if you walk into the Bengals locker room for a decade, guys walked in and saw AJ Green and Geno Atkins and they were like, oh my God, my heroes. You clear those guys out. Everyone walks in the room and looks at Joe Burrow. And that is what they needed. Not that they weren't last year, but like he was still a rookie. He was still young. AJ's there. Gino's there. Gio's there. A bunch of 30 olds. Carlos is there. You know, inside out. And, (laughs) And so you've got all of that going on. Now, you have everybody looking at the real leader who does it the right way, and everyone wants to work as hard as he does, which is almost impossible. Everybody wants to, you know, be that tenacious, care about practice, care about, you know, being there every day, reliability, all those things that you want, and it's different. It changes the entire operation, and that's what makes guys like you, like Burrow has been, and but like that's what makes Brady. It's why Brady goes to Tampa Bay, and everything changes. It's how. You know, Breeze was in New Orleans. Like, there's an accountability that comes from that cycle, and I think they feel like they have that now. Which uh, I didn't realize until a recent article from you guys about uh, Mike Brown's affinity for Drew Brees. Yeah. Well, he just – I mean, he literally just said that um, the other day. At the – yeah. At the luncheon, uh, talking about how there's this – just different level of intensity to exactly what you're doing in this moment that you've only seen from some of the greats. And I think that's, that's kind of been what everyone has said about him. And now on the field, like I think he's a, he's a a processor, you know, extraordinaire, everything else, like his physical tools are very average. um, But his ability. So I, last year, my favorite story of all last year, I've done in a long time was right at midseason. It turned out prophetic because he got hurt. But was during the bye week. I just asked a bunch of coaches who their favorite plays were from Burrow's first half. And because I thought it was a good chance for them to sort of brag on what really impressed them and get into the X's and O's a little bit. I was stunned how honest they were and how like much they divulged. But it was tell like the stuff they were telling me, like one of them was about how in the second Cleveland game he's in the shotgun and he looks to his left and they had some concept, some cross concept going on between two receivers. And he, they ran it on the first game in the first game against Cleveland Thursday night on a fourth and four and converted to the backside to Boyd on the sideline for a first down. He looks over, he sees them starting to fade toward what they did the first time. He immediately throws up a counter to it on the spot that he's that they told me they had not gone over since like the second week of training camp. And they run it, catch the corner, falling to the outside, run a seam up the middle for like 20 yards that he complete to like freaking Mike Thomas or something. And it's like, they're like that's that is insane next level like recall in on the spot in seconds to remember something remember something from five weeks ago and then recall the counter 
from three months ago in like a three second span on the spot when you're a rookie. Like, like that is the type of stuff that is happening out there that Burrow does that is what blows them away. The rest of it, and people get caught up in the intangibles because they're obvious, is whatever. But like that stuff, like, oh my God, that is what makes you believe in what he's doing and what he can be. That's awesome. I remember that story. And uh, that, I mean, that, that gives you, as a fan, like, that's what we talked about early in the podcast when we said the, that he gives you this hope to dream big on, on just, not just the intangibles, but the, the recollection and the, the recall and the, the ability to analyze and every, all, all that just to, yeah. uh, it's and now, I mean, I, you know, I, I love Bruce Feldman. He's just so good. He just wrote this light, latest piece on him with Jordan Palmer. And awesome. like, and you're hearing the, the specific numbers about how, okay, of course a dude with that kind of work ethic is going to be like, oh, you're ripping on me for my arm strength. Watch me throw 54 miles per hour now and like figure that out. And, and right. the idea of that being a thing, you know, we talked about it because players were talking about it in the in OTAs. But for Bruce to go that deep and have the, like the technology behind exactly how it happened in those moments when I loved the quote of BM, he, he was like, you know, 54 what? Give me a ball. Let me, I'm throwing it 54 <laughs> miles per hour. Like just unbelievable that because he'd always been around 47, 48 and feeling like he'd figured that out. That's the scary part because that's what everybody ripped on Burrow about. Like he can't, you know, he doesn't have the arm strength, this, that, and the other. And I think he is like, so focused on shutting people up about that deep ball that between Jamar chase and working on his power and velocity and everything else. Like it feels like you could see a, a big uh, FU moment coming from burrow uh, every deep ball they hit this year. Absolutely. That's, that's exciting. <laughs> I'm hearing, I'm, I'm really taking two things away from this podcast tonight. One bet the overs every game, Bet the overs. two, it really doesn't matter if Zach Taylor can coach or not, as long as he has a playbook that he can install. Joe Burrow can just call the offense. Well, I mean, but that's what so many of the great quarterbacks do, and people don't realize that a lot of times. Like, and that's what uh, you know. Even in that piece, like Zach and Brian would be like, you know, the best thing about Joe is you make a bad call, he gets you in the right one, yeah. and that's what, that's what the great quarterbacks do. They always. They take the negatives away. You can call the great one, and he plays the great one and makes it count. But when you call the wrong one, do they get you out of the wrong one so you don't take a negative? And that's what Burrow's so great at is keeping you unmanageable because he gets you in the right one. It's just a matter of him having the Rolodex of seeing everything the NFL is going to throw at him to go into that that recall bank. Because right. he, didn't, he didn't have that in the first half of last year. Once he had that – that's when he started becoming scary, and that's when they started moving the ball up and down the field, everybody. A lot, a lot of excitement to uh, to think about with, with Joe Burrow and the Bengals. Uh, so we managed to get this far and, and talk very little to, no, to nothing about defense, which that's okay. Uh, I've been doing that for 10 months, Kevin. <laughs> like, I, you like, I feel so – I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I don't even – I feel like I know anybody that plays on defense because all we ever do is talk about – because every storyline is on the offensive side of the ball. Well, a question that's defense-related that uh, – I tried to sneak one in earlier, but uh, with Carlos Dunlap gone – do you think there will be more, less, or the same amount of sucka shit? 
there should be far less suck of shit. <laughs> there definitely would be far less half-assing. Here's my favorite. Like, I, you know, Carlos had a very had a great career. I think he owes a lot of money to Mike Zimmer. Uh, and that's it's all it's great. Like he needed a great coach. And like he's lucky he got one. Well, and he and he went to Seattle and did things like it, Win motivated. And he yeah. was he was okay. I mean, he had some very big moment stuff. The you know the great coaches know how to get it out of guys like that. I, I absolutely. I this is not you know I I love for Carlos. He's a nice enough guy. He but Carlos's favorite move was to half ass a rush and jump up and try to knock it down and get a pass blocked. Okay, because that meant he could like not really try hard and and that but that's been his mo his whole career. And, but you're willing to take that because his highs are so high when he cares. And that's why Seattle on fourth and whatever, you love Carlos Dunlap because here he comes. The problem was he quit caring about being that here because he didn't care at all. And, right. and uh, so you, you know, but they, they weren't really willing to deal with the, the long lulls, the suck of shit. The suck of shit. Yeah, they weren't really interested <laughs> in the suck of shit. So. <laughs> oh, that was one of my favorite moments of uh, social media Bengals last year. When he put his house up for sale? Yeah. That was great. That post game was fantastic. You watch him like go off on the sideline, and we're not, I mean, we're not even out of the post. We're in the middle of the post game zooms with all these put with like players and everything. And Carlos has already put his house up for sale. And we're like having to ask players about this shit on the fly. We're like, Oh, uh, you know, whatever. Before you leave, uh, Carlos just said my house is for sale. And Joe Mixon has said, I'll take that crib. Uh, do you have any response? (laughs) By the way, before you get out of here, have you checked out Zillow recently? Uh, Yeah. And then you got like, it's like, I, you know, you got a Saturday morning. I'm trying to have a nice Saturday with my kids in season. And Carlos just, you know, Instagrams out the fucking rotation. <laughs> I'm like, can I just, can I go to breakfast? Can't without having to deal with this shit for once, you know, like this is, you know, um, it's just, it was, that was insane. I mean, that was, that was insane. Well, we've kept you probably long enough. Um, we He's got the first day of school tomorrow, Sox. We gotta let him. I do. Got a new backpack. I was Yeah, do you post a, a picture? Like do you get your picture? We did this. Door? We did uh we did uh a few years ago. We have one myself and Jim Lazarski and Sam Green. It was uh whatever the first preseason game was at Detroit one year and we we did the picture of first Bengals road trip. We I bought a chalkboard and we wrote on it and did the whole thing. First Bengals road trip. We uh, so I still I still have so I've always I like the concept of first day of school. But for me, mock turtle soup is always the first day of school. It's very much it's such a tradition that you know. You, Paul, are you guys going to be back out on the road this year or TBD yes. still? Yeah, nice. no, we'll be back. We'll be back. Nice. Everybody's kind of back. They, they're, um, you know, as long as there's an advantage to us going on the road, we were always, we would always do it. There was just no reason because we literally couldn't get anything on the road last right. year. So, right. yep. um, this year there's no zooms after a game, so you gotta go. So we'll be there. Um, the locker rooms I look forward open to that. this year. What's that? Are the locker rooms open this year for you guys? Or? Not yet. So we'll see. 
Um, the the regular season has not been set as far as protocols agreed to by the league and the PA. The training camp and preseason ones involve us getting a time with players outside of the locker room, which for us will be in like a media area, like a mixed zone type thing mm-hmm. where they'll pull players into. And then after practice on the field or, you know, next to the field outside, which is fine because actually in training camp, you know, this is how the sausage is made, but like in camp, almost everything happens on the field after practice anyway. And so the outside element we're already there is actually fine. It's not that big a deal to not have locker room. I mean, I'd love to have locker room back in the preseason, but we can get away with it. What will be interesting is what they come down with for the regular season and post game. If they allow us back in, they probably won't, but um, ideally we still end up with some form of a mix zone and not a, PR drags player to space reporters are yeah. waiting at because you lose the conversation element there. And that's really all it's about. Like, I don't, I've always said, I don't care about being in the locker room. I care about being in a place where we can, I can have a conversation with a player or a coach and not in a press conference setting. Cause that's what ruins it. And so as long, I think that's their idea find a way to make that happen. We'll see, but either way there will be stuff happening in some capacity after games that after games, you just have to like, that's just what the league's built on. So we'll see how it plays out, but we'll be there. Good news for you. Good news for all your subscribers at the athletic. Yeah. I, I just need a reason to make the trips guys. Like I just, I need a reason to convince my bosses to send me to Vegas uh, and to Denver. Is that, is, that, is Vegas the number one spot this year? Is that is that where we're uh, most looking forward? Hard to beat. Yeah, uh, hard to beat Vegas now being in the rotation, especially when when we don't get it every year. Uh, being in the AFC North, like, I love Baltimore, and you know I'll I loved when they would always schedule Cleveland in December because I could always go get the Great Lakes fresh from the faucet. Oh, yeah, uh, but uh, in in Pittsburgh, actually, I think is a highly underrated town to go visit, um, but. I would much prefer to be in the AFC West where I was going to Vegas every year now. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, the trips are great this year, though. Vegas, Chicago, Denver are like a top three. You add in a New York. You now have – now, New York sucks for us because I stay in Jersey by the stadium just because it's like that's where the stadium right. is. But for fans, like – yeah, I know, right? It's like <laughs> I'm going to Hoboken or whatever. Like, so, so I, Jesus. but like, you know, you're talking about New York for, I mean, New York's a great trip for fans. So you get New York, Denver, Chicago, Vegas. Like, it's a great year for trips. Um, Detroit. Yes. No, did that not, <laughs> did that not resonate? I've been to Ford Field. Actually, uh, Ford Field is one of my favorite venues and one of my favorite games I ever covered. The Calvin Johnson dunks on three Bengals in the end zone game happened there. <laughs> <laughs> on he he dunked on Pack, Tez, and George I no and Reggie Nelson and Reggie Nelson over the top in in like a wild game that Mike Nugent hit a game winner on, which was just super fun. In that I think it was the fourteen season. Nuge, 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 back to back OT game winners, but at Buffalo, at Detroit, and back to back weeks. Our our trip to Ford Field was like that 
Carson era, and we saw a handful of Bengals, definitely including Chris Henry, at the casino in Greektown the night before a one o'clock game. <laughs> you and know there's what? one thing I can tell you: Chris Henry is not a mistakable human being for someone else. No, no, <laughs> no. You you would be surprised how many times stuff like that happens. Having been out, I, we're always like, oh. You're out here, okay. okay. <laughs> well, I'm hammered, and it's one o'clock, but yeah. <laughs> I'm not playing tomorrow. <laughs> yes, I, 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 I always laugh thinking about. Uh, Baltimore is known for it, but like there, there's a bar right next to the team hotel that we would stay at, and the night before Paul Gunther's first game as a defensive coordinator, we were in pickles till like three a.m. Oh, screaming, screaming about how he's going to blitz the hell out of Joe Flacco the next day. And I'll be goddamn if he didn't, and I'll be goddamn if it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if, unless you guys have anything else. Uh, One last. Know. Yes or, yes or right. no. Does, does Joe Burrow play a snap in the preseason? No. Right. no they're not going to mess with that. That's yeah. good. That was the answer I was hoping for. Yeah, no, I think he he won't play. He'll his first snap of the year will be taken on the first series against Minnesota. I don't think they want to screw with it, and so uh, you know, I don't I don't disagree. And the yeah. Brandon Allen show, like they probably want to protect him to the extent that they would almost their starting court. Like he he'll probably be handled with kid gloves, right? I hope you like Eric Dungey, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, some at some point they need a quarterback out there that understands how to like call the right protections so they can judge the line. But yeah, I know, I yeah, I think that they'll they'll treat Allen like the starter in the preseason and let him play a couple series here and there, and then turn it over to the threes. So it should be a fun preseason. To watch. Yeah. I, I, yeah, as if they aren't all fun. No, oh, yeah, they're know? fun. Yeah. All right. Well, awesome. uh, Matt, you want to take us no, out? Thanks, Paul. Let's, uh, yeah, let's end the podcast. <laughs> Is there a way we end it? You said it like there's a thing that we're supposed to do. Oh, well, there's a backstory, Paul, and it's not good. <laughs> so, Matt got really drunk it, once on the podcast, and then he was like, Are we still recording? End the podcast. End and the then- damn podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't, I don't remember this happening. To be fair. He was like about it. a bottle of Elijah Craig deep, I think. Okay. Yeah. So now we podcast. just let him in the podcast. to say? End the damn podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I like it. End yeah. the damn podcast. Till next time. <laughs> awesome.